0: Let's open the word of God to John chapter 10. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for Psalm 101. I hope that you're all committed to early cut off the evildoers from the house of our God. David Jones, your enthusiasm this morning is precious. And I love it and I love you for it. Would to God everyone came into the house of the Lord the same way. And for any that are thinking you're just putting on a show, the Lord has a warm place for them after this life is over. And I'll help them get there. John chapter 10. The first 18 verses we have dealt with, and so we want to start at verse 19. And I want to read through verse 26 and see if we can cover these eight verses before our break. When you look at John chapter 10 the three parts that we want to take up today are verses 19 through 24, which we can describe as a division among the Jews. Verse 25, which is Jesus' appeal to his works for the Jews to believe him. And then verses 26 through 30, which is Jesus' appeal to election as to why they didn't believe him. And that's what we want to cover today. But right now, verses 19 through 24, 26, there was a division, therefore, again, among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, he hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, these are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was at Jerusalem the feast of the dedication and it was winter and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch then came the Jews round about him and said unto him how long dost thou make us to doubt if thou be the Christ tell us plainly Jesus answered them I told you and ye believe not The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, and especially this 26th verse. This 26th verse and the four verses that follow it are five of the most powerful, potent, persuasive verses in the Bible for the doctrine of election. And for all five points of Calvinism and for all five phases of salvation, they're all right here in this verse and the verses that follow. And may the Lord bless us to see that. Verse 19, there was a division, therefore, again, among the Jews for these sayings. If you'll flip back to chapter 7 and verse 43, it tells us, So there was a division among the people because of him. 743. Then if you look at 916, it says, Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? Mm -hmm. And there was a division among them. And so we come to 1019. There was a division, therefore, again among them among the jews for these sayings after a difficult parable like the one he had just given that ended with doctrinal declarations there was a jewish division i hope that you'll recognize why in verse 24 if thou be the christ tell us plainly they're fussing about the fact that he had just told them a parable But that parable followed upon him explaining to the man born blind and the Pharisees standing around him in the last six (laughs) verses of chapter 9 that he was indeed the Son of God. He had just told them plainly that he was the Son of God. But here we have a division among the Jews, common. For those not understanding his parable, it was confusing. For the rest that understood his parable, it was condemning, because they were the thieves and the robbers and the hirelings. Be thinking with me. You know, sometimes the Pharisees did understand when Jesus was pulling their chain. Like in Matthew chapter 21, when he said the kingdom of God's going to be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof, they knew he was talking about them. And so there were some here, they would have been condemned if they understood it. If they didn't understand it, they would have been confused and irritated by their confusion. Remember, Jesus came not to bring peace, but a sword. Are you able to receive that? He will always cause divisions. That's his main business. Because he said so. In Matthew chapter 10, he said, Think not. Do not be confused about me. Think not that I came to bring peace. I came not to bring peace, but a sword, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And here's one big family. Can they all trace their genealogy back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Was Jacob the father of the 12 tribes of Israel? This is one big family. It's the church. And yet there's a huge division in it. And it's a repeat division because of Jesus and his preaching. How could you be offended at the first 18 verses of this chapter? But they were. They were offended no matter what he did. When they demanded of him a sign... He said, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh a sign. Why can't you remember the fifteen thousand nine hundred and seventy-one miracles that I've performed? From raising the dead to calming storms to feeding a multitudes with a small lad's lunch, and so forth. He said, I'll give you a sign. Kill me, bury me. I'll only be in the ground three days and three nights. Did he give them the sign? Did he fulfill the sign? Did they pay a large sum of money to the Roman soldiers to deny the sign? See, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you tell some people. They're so stubborn. They're so rebellious. They're so sinful. They're so much the slave of the devil and of their own imagination and the lust of their own flesh, heart, and mind that you can't convince them no matter what you do. It didn't matter what Jesus said. It didn't matter what Jesus did. It didn't matter that John the Baptist came before Jesus. It didn't matter that the man born blind came after Jesus. It didn't matter. And so we're going to encounter that today. And there's a division. And there'll there'll be a division in our families. There'll be a division in our church. The Lord will keep refining us. And I love his refining. Oh, Lord, just keep refining us. Keep taking away those that don't love you and send us those that do love you. Amen. That's what we just want to see continually happening. Therefore, the quality of our church can continue, can continue to improve. Yeah, right. We want the quality, not the quantity. We'll take the quantity if the Lord sends it to us. The plainer and harder we preach Jesus Christ and His righteousness and his righteous standard for our lives, carnal belly worshippers are going to leave us. Right. There'll be another division. There's always going to be a division. There was a division when Paul would preach. The whole book of Acts describes him going into cities and preaching. There would be a group that believed on him and would follow him. The other group would make fun of him and plan a riot to get rid of him over and over again in the book of Acts. We can read about it. Jesus secured righteousness for his elect, but he has a high standard of it for them as well. In Romans chapter five, Matthew chapter 5, he said, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is the standard of Jesus Christ. He said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. It is not Jesus doing the will of the Father for us in Matthew chapter 7 or Matthew chapter 5 or just about any place you read. It is us doing the will of the Father that shows us to have the changed heart and thus one of God's children. There has to be a changed life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That is a saved person. And so the more we preach it, the more we'll get rid of carnal, belly-worshipping Christians. And so we're going to preach it, we're going to preach it loud and long. We will press all gospel claims as we should, giving them reason to leave because that's what we want them to do. And we'll help them out the door. Titus chapter 1, we're supposed to rebuke them, and rebuke them sharply, and not be intimidated or afraid of anyone. Titus chapter 2 starts out with old men, then old women, then young women, then young men, then ministers, then servants, and then Paul told Timothy in the last verse of that chapter, these things speak and teach and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Right. I don't know about Titus. Timothy was a timid man. And he was a young man. So Paul had to encourage him. I don't need any encouragement on this front. The Lord gives me plenty in his Bible. We're just going to preach the truth and we're going to press it. There are people that don't want to do things God's way. They don't want to be the wives that God told them to be. They think they have a better idea than God's plan. God's plan is perfect for being a wife. God's plan is perfect for being an employee. God's plan is perfect for being a citizen of these United States of America. God's plan for how you manage your money. God's plan for how you should rule your mouth. God's plan for all of it is absolutely perfect. And it's the whole counsel of God. And we're going to preach it just the way the Bible tells us to preach it. And we're going to expect it. And we're going to help those that don't want to do it right out the door where they belong. Because they don't care about the things of God. The person that cares about the things of God, the faithful of the land that Bryant presented to us, have changed lives because they submit. Amen. Right. They submit to become slaves of God. I only want to do it God's way. I don't care how my parents did it. I don't care how I have done it. I don't care how every other church does it. I'm going to do it God's way. Yes. That's what we want to be. So we're going to press it, and there'll be divisions because of it. Faithful preachers war against their hearers. Faithful preachers don't entertain their hearers. Faithful preachers don't comfort their hearers, except once in a while. Faithful preachers war against their hearers. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It was used in the back room in our prayer meeting already this morning. Amen. We don't care if we offend scorners any more than Jesus Christ cares. The disciples came to Jesus Christ and said to him, Lord, don't you know the Pharisees were offended when you talked about the toilet and what comes out from behind them? Don't you know that that irritated and offended them? He said, every plant that my heavenly father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Their blind leaders of the blind, leave them alone. Let them all fall into the ditch. I love his gospel. I love his gospel. I love just the way he preaches. I want to be just like Jesus of the Bible. You know, people have an idea about the preaching of Jesus that he's like those uh, movies that come out of Hollywood where he's that effeminate, passive, weak, long-haired, John Lennon look-alike that sits cross-legged on the ground like a Hindu guru. They think that's Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible was entirely different. He could sit down and take himself a chunk of wood and make himself a handle and tie nine leather straps to it and make himself a scourge. This is what the Bible says. He didn't go to the hardware to buy it. It says he made it. And then he drove out those money changers out of his temple. He turned their tables upside down. Do you know what kind of a clatter and noise there was when money and and sheep and oxen and doves and everything's flying everywhere? Oh, yes. Yes. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you meet him, he's going to be the same way. And and right now, he's the same way with us about the sins in our lives. And so there's a division if we preach him the way the Bible presents him. In John chapter 6, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? So he made the saying a little harder until they all left and went away. John chapter 6. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. I love him. We love him. You love him with me. For the most part of you, what will you do with Jesus Christ, my hearers, this morning? He is the Son of God and the High King of Heaven. Worship Him with me. Don't question His person, His doctrine, or His ambassadors at your own peril. Good questions are good things, and good questions will always be answered, and answered quickly and answered as thoroughly as I can. But foolish and unlearned questions will be ignored, just like I'm told. If you fall on Jesus Christ, you'll be broken. (laughs) If he falls on us, he'll grind us to powder. Verse 20. And many of them said, this is the division. He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? These blasphemous reprobates could see that he was the good shepherd by everything in his life. But they refused to see. There is no blindness so great as the refusal to see what is right in front of your eyes which Jesus had just identified in the last three verses of chapter 9. When Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now, ye say, we see, therefore your sin remaineth, and yes, indeed, you're blind. That's what he had just taught them. Many of them said he hath a devil and is mad. Peter wrote against the Jews as well about their willful ignorance of past events and historical events. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter is presenting the second coming of Jesus Christ in conjunction with the melting of... Of the universe to make a new heaven and a new earth, he said, there's scoffers. There's scoffers that are saying nothing has changed from the very beginning, but this they are willingly ignorant of, that the earth once stood out of the water, but then it was overwhelmed with water and everything was destroyed and they are ignoring the fact that there was a total world destruction once before and there's going to be another one in the Jewish nation. Of all people, they should have known because they had the book of Genesis that told them about that flood. But it was destroyed and they were willfully ignorant of it. And here's some willful ignorance and some blasphemy accusing the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just like Romans chapter 1, and I'm not going to turn you there, but verses 18 through 32 15 verses say that they are without excuse. There is enough evidence of God in the creation of the universe to know that He has eternal power and a Godhead. But they refuse to submit to Him and they make gods to their own liking. After creatures, after man, after creeping things, men will reduce themselves to worshiping the image, the idol, of a creeping thing, rather than submit themselves to the eternal power and Godhead of the living and true God. They're willfully ignorant, and it says so. In fact, I want to turn you there, just to remind you of how plainly it says it over and over again, that he has made his truth plain by creation. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Right. Look at that. Who hold the truth. They know there's a God. Right. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. This is amazing language. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Right. What are the next two words? Being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. It's all there, but they're willfully ignorant. Now, they've been given a little bit of information and revelation about God, We've been given a whole lot of information and revelation about God. How willfully ignorant are we of what's going to happen to us if we don't obey him? Lord, help us to be slaves to God and slaves to obedience and slaves of righteousness, as we learned earlier this morning from Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Verse 21, others said, "'These are not the words of him that hath a devil.'" Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? This contrast is like the blind man and the Pharisees. Oh, what a marvelous thing. We've just had a man open my eyes. It hasn't happened since the foundation of the world, and you don't know whether he's of God or not. What a marvelous thing we've got going on here. Willful ignorance. Verse 21, others said. So here's the contrast. Many, in verse 20, said, Jesus is devil-possessed and mad. Why do you listen to him at all? Others said, this isn't the language of a madman. And as a madman, heal blind men by a devil power. Well, the answer to that is yes, it can happen. But it happens rare because the work of Jesus Christ far exceeded all the gypsies of Israel at that time. These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? This should be obvious. But so should the Red Sea have been obvious to Pharaoh. But if God doesn't open your eyes, you can't see it. God must open our hearts and then open our eyes, open our ears, and open our understanding. And then we need to submit to what he shows us right in front of our faces. You would think that after ten plagues, Pharaoh might have had second thoughts about taking his horse and chariot down into the Red Sea. But he didn't. He went right down in there. He had more faith than the Israelites did. The Israelites didn't think they were going to get through the Red Sea to the other side, but Pharaoh did. What a difference. Chapters 9 and 10 were close by, and Jesus' miracles in Jerusalem were remembered, including this man born blind. The contrast, the word entering into now, should cause us to give thanks to God. But God be thanked. But God be thanked. We can claim nothing else but God be thanked. Amen. We, are, we would be just like these Jews in verse 20 if it were not for the grace of God. We'd be like the Jews in verse 21 making no commitment of repentance and faith toward Jesus Christ if it weren't for the grace of God. But God be thanked. He's changed you, David. He changed your father. He changed your grandmother. He changed some before them by the grace of God. Yes, it runs in families, and it doesn't run in families. Thank you, Lord, for the grace of God. I'm glad that there's some in my family. I'm thankful for my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, and the Lord's great work in him, as I've told you about before. So let's come to verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem the feast of the dedication and it was winter and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Let's get these two verses taken care of first. It was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. Jesus was at Jerusalem at this time. That's what it's telling us. While he was there, there was a particular winter feast called the dedication. There is no feast called the dedication in the law of Moses which prescribed three annual feasts. Right. The three annual feasts were Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Pentecost or the Feast of Fruits, and Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Three feasts prescribed and detailed by Moses in his five books. Passover was held in March or April, as you know. Pentecost was held, f- how many days later? So it was held in May and the Feast of Booths was held as a fall harvest feast, September or October. But now we're in the middle of winter. What's the first day of winter to you? This morning or last Sunday morning? <laughs> yeah, last Sunday morning was a little colder than this morning by about four degrees. But the first day of winter is in the middle of December. So this Feast of Dedication is in December. You know the name of this Feast of Dedication. It goes by a different name today. And it happens in December. What is it? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. The feast of dedication. There is no feast that falls during the winter in the law of Moses, so this has to be something else. And this is the feast of Hanukkah, what it's called today. And it recalls the Maccabean dedication of the second temple. The first temple was built by Solomon, and it was destroyed to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar. The second temple was built by Zerubbabel, and it was destroyed to the ground by Titus the Roman. But in the middle of that period of time, Antiochus IV of the Seleucid kingdom of the divided Greek empire after Alexander the Great died, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, desecrated that temple, set up idols in it, set up a brothel in it with prostitutes, sacrificed pigs, and poured pig's blood all over everything in it for 2,300 days. It's prophesied specifically, carefully, and very easy to understand in Daniel 8. And not everything in Daniel 8 is easy to understand, but most of it is. It's much easier than the book of Revelation, and that's why it comes much earlier in the Bible for you. And if you'll understand Daniel, it'll help you with the book of Revelation. But in Daniel chapter 8, the 2,300 days is identified as happening under the Greek empire, which is just fantastic when the Lord just goes ahead and tells us that this particular beast I'm talking about is Greek. right? And it's a little horn that grew up later after there were four horns, the four generals of Alexander that divided his empire after he died and his heirs were killed. And so the Bible tells us about these things and I've preached them to you before and I'm not going to review all that today. It's not really worth it, given what we have in front of us. <laughs> oh, what do I want to get to? I'll, tell you. I'll just go ahead and tell you what I want to get to. And if you read last night's preparatory email, you know what I want to get to. I want to get to verse 26. Right. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, Amen. as I said unto you. Right. That is bold preaching. When a minister like Jesus Christ tells his audience, you are reprobates. You are goats. You are not of mine. That's how he preached. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. That is reprobation. It is the opposite of election. The sheep we have explained to us in verses... uh, Here I go. We'll just leave off these middle verses in between. Uh, Jesus explains the sheep were the sheep by the result of election. So if you're not sheep, it's the result of reprobation. (laughs) Reprobation is the opposite of election. Election is God's choice to save some. Reprobation is God's choice not to save the rest and to leave them in their own sins and to the just condemnation for their sins. He doesn't owe salvation to anyone. If he'd have reprobated all of us, it would be perfectly fair just and holy because we rejected him. But he saved some. People want to say God's not fair if he saves some and not all. I say God's not fair if he saved any and didn't condemn all. He's merciful and gracious. I just can't believe how God could hate Esau. Well, I just can't believe how God could love Jacob. Have you read the life of Jacob? He wasn't exactly your favorite son. What did he do to his father Isaac when his father's Isaac's eyes were dim and he was old? What did he do to Poor Leah and Rachel married two more. We could go on and on. Anyway, that's, I'm getting off the point. Let's get back to the point. And the point is in verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, it was winter. You can read about it in documents that are on our website, like Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 11, and Maccabees. If you type in Maccabees, you'll get a slide presentation about Judas Maccabees, the hammer of God, and what he did to deliver the temple out of the hands of Antiochus IV of the Seleucid Empire after six and a half years or however long it takes to get to 2,300 days. And it set up a feast that's been held ever since then. And it's the Feast of Dedication. It's called the Feast of Lights. They set up lights that lasts about eight days, and they remember that the Maccabees, with God's blessing, though very small in number, but fantastic guerrilla warfare, threw off the mighty Greeks. I mean, the Seleucid kingdom from Syria... If you look at a map, one of these days we're going to have some stuff at my fingertips. I mean fingertip, right? Fingertip. And we'll get a map up there where you can see that directly north of Israel is Syria and directly south of Israel is Egypt. Because Israel lies at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea and lies north and south. And so these wars were fought back and forth between the Seleucids of the Greek Empire and the Ptolemies of the Greek Empire. Ptolemies in Egypt, Seleucids in Syria. They fought back and forth, and they were mighty. They were two large remnants of the Greek Empire, and there's little tiny Israel in between. But uh, Judas Maccabees and his brothers, his name was called Maccabee for the Hammer of God, threw them off and instituted the Feast of the Dedication. Because the temple was rededicated to God after the brothel of prostitutes was taken out of it, after the false gods were taken out of it, and after it was cleansed and re-sanctified by the priests with the proper blood being poured on it as Moses had prescribed. An implication of Jesus being in the temple on this occasion should silence opponents of holidays. We are not opponents of all holidays. We're just opponents of religious holidays like Christmas, Halloween, Easter, and Valentine's Day. We reject those religious holidays that come to us from pagan idolatry. We do not take God's condemnation of them, pagan holidays, to oppose birthdays, anniversaries, national holidays, the 4th of July, Memorial Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Secretary's Day, and by all means, Pastor's Day. (laughs) Listen, there's a day for everyone. There's Fireman's Day. It doesn't matter. It's all, don't you dare do a thing. (laughs) Those days are just matters of Christian liberty. But we are not at liberty to celebrate pagan days dedicated to the worship of false gods and whitewashed by the Roman Catholic Church. So we reject all of those, and someone will come along and think that we don't celebrate anything, but we do. That's why we love to make a big thing about Thanksgiving Day. Because we can, we can engage in that. And if somebody says, but it's not taught in the Bible. Well, neither was the Feast of Dedication. And neither was Purim. Do you want a second one? You say in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Right. Okay, the second one is Purim. Do the Jews still celebrate Purim? Oh, yes, they do. What is Purim for? Purim is to celebrate the book of Esther when they were allowed to kill all their enemies. Right. And it was named after the, the Persian lot, which was called pur, P-U-R, pur. It's not, it not nothing to do with your kitty cat. It's the Greek dice. It's the Greek way of casting lots. And so it was called purim in the Bible, right. but not in the books of Moses, but celebrated from that day forward. So we, we learn things from this and we thank God for this. These other days, not commanded by God for observance or matters of Christian liberty we ignore incidental connection to paganism because there's incidental connection to paganism everywhere we turn but when it's flagrant outright connection to paganism whitewashed by the catholic church and we know that every abomination comes out of the catholic church we get rid of Christ mass easter hallowed evening that's a that's a catholic name for that night and saint Valentine's Day. Remember, we are worshiping today on Sunday. Am I allowed, will you allow me, that when I write you an email, that I can refer to Sunday, even though it's a day dedicated to the worship of the sun? Should I use the first day of the week instead? Could we do that? Could we get rid of any use of Sunday from now on? Could we make a big deal about it in school? Could we protest in the halls? Could we lay down in front of the buses? at Bob Jones and say, we're not going to call it Sunday anymore. It's the first day of the week to get rid of the word sun because it involves sun worship. If they're smart, they'll say, good idea. But what are we going to do about moon day that comes next? Once you start down that road, there is no end to that road. I want to know what you're carrying in your pocket right now. I believe that everyone in here, is carrying pictures of a truncated Egyptian pyramid with an all-seeing eye over the top of it, and you're all carrying memorials of that in your pocket. Do you have to do that? No. You could be dealing in change. You could have a box in your trunk that weighs about 50 pounds, (laughs) and it could be full of quarters. You don't have to use those things. Why do you use them? Because it's an incidental connection to those things. Do we have a Bible basis for such reasoning? May the Lord pardon his servant, but when I go back to Syria, my master, the king of Syria, is going to expect me to accompany him into the house of Rimmon and to bow with him in the house of Rimmon. What should thy servant do? This is Naaman to Elisha. What are the wonderful words? Go in peace. Thank you, Lord. Is it taught in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I have written unto you in an epistle not to company with adulterers, fornicators, idolaters, sorcerers, and all the rest of the stuff that men do in the church. Right. But you're welcome to company with them in the world. If you go to work with them, that's okay. If you go to a block party on their block, that's okay. First Corinthians chapter 10. This is all part of the whole counsel of God to keep us balanced and reasonable. Right. It's God's balance. I don't care about your balance, and you don't care about my balance, and I want to help you. I don't care about my balance. My balance is different than your balance, and my balance is somewhat a little bit different than God's balance when it comes to Christian liberty because my dad taught me a balance about the Lord's Day that's different than what you guys do with the Lord's Day. But I just keep it to myself, except once in a while when I mention it like this, in general, you don't even know what I'm talking about. What would I do on the Lord's Day and what wouldn't I do on the Lord's Day? You're not going to know because I'm not going to give you a list because there's no Crosby manual for this church. There's the Bible. There's the Bible. And that's our manual. And so there are things that the Bible condemns when you go into the land of Canaan and you learn how those nations celebrated and observed traditions for their gods. Do not ask about those traditions and do not do them. Thou shalt break down those things that are dedicated solely to the worship of God. Sunday doesn't have anything to do with the sun except by its origin, so we ignore it. We ignore words like potluck and bonfire for bonfire and other things like that because once we start down the road of worrying about incidental connection with something, where do we end? I'm going to ask for the money out of your pockets because you need to get rid of that picture. All Jesus would say is, Show me your money. So you hold up the all seeing eye of Horus out of Egypt, and he says, Render unto Horus the things that belong to Horus. And in our country, that's Washington and the IRS and the Treasury Department. Let's get off that point. It's so insignificant compared to what we have here. Verse 23 And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch was a magnificent enclosed porch and was popular with the apostles. You can find the apostles in it in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 5. And if you're wondering, did the temple have a porch big enough for the crowds of the Jerusalem church, it was 400 cubits long. 400 cubits long is how many feet long? 600 600 feet long. How long is a football field? 300 feet long. So it's twice as long as a football field. Anyone who's ever run a 200, you ran it on a curve because it was half a lap of a 400-meter track. But I, was, I went to high school when cheap high schools that couldn't afford those fancy dandy 400-meter round oval tracks, they would run straight away 200s. I mean, you couldn't even see the finish line. <laughs> oh, oh, forgive me. Uh, as long, there's only 100 meters on the side of a 400-meter track. And that's pretty long. When you come around that corner and you're tired, and you know you got to sprint to the finish line, there's somebody beside you stronger and faster than you are, it's a long ways. Mm -hmm. But a straightaway 200. Now all that is to say, this porch was 600 feet long. And they would gather there, and Jesus was walking. The Bible wants us to know that. So I'm referring you to Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 5 about this porch that Josephus wrote about in detail and had it measured when Herod Agrippa came into Judea and that porch needed to be restored, Josephus recorded that the Jews applied to him for restoration so that the 18,000 men that worked in the temple could be employed for a while. Jesus walked there. So Jesus is not in Galilee, 70 or 80 miles north of Jerusalem. He's not just at Jerusalem. He's in the temple at the Feast of Dedication and grants it his presence. Some, you could say to me, well, he was there because that's when the people gathered together for a feast. Yes, but why did he preach against it? Because when he gathered together in Jerusalem in John chapter 2 for a feast, and it was Passover, and he found the money changers at, at work there, he had something to say about it. You have turned my father's house of prayer into a den of thieves. He didn't say anything like that. So we, we appreciate him giving us approval of a national holiday and that national holidays are not an offense against God. The 4th of July is something we should celebrate. Thanksgiving Day is something we should celebrate as a nation, as citizens of this nation. There's nothing wrong with that. Lord, help us to always have the balance. The whole counsel of God, brethren. I had a gathering with my family in the last couple of days. And I spent a few minutes and probably bored them to tears. Just a couple of minutes about presuppositional apologetics. It is how we believe. Our worldview and our life view is based on presuppositional (coughs) apologetics. Apologetics is the science of defending religious belief. Presuppositional is there are some things that you don't try to prove. And one of them is the existence of God. We start with the existence of God. We assume it. Why do we assume it? Because it's already been implanted in us in conscience. It's already been revealed to us by creation and so forth. Our worldview is different from other people. It is based on presuppositional apologetics. We are Bible Christians. Whatever the Bible says, that's what we believe. And I just shared some things with you that are part of that presuppositional thinking from the Bible. And that is how we find balance. Our balance is not what makes sense to other people. Our balance is based in the Bible. Therefore, those bakers, those bakers that are fussing about baking cakes for sodomites, they are totally wrong by the Bible. And it's part of our presuppositional understanding of Christian ethics. They are stupid and they are wrong. And they make me sick. They are so infantile in their minds and lacking in their integrity. There is no faith involved in the matter. They see two women come into a cake store holding hands and they won't bake them a cake. Did they ask the previous customer, have you committed adultery in the past year? Have you, have you kicked your dog in the last week? Have you tithed regularly? Because all those are sins and you can't pick and choose your sins. And the Bible teaches us these things. And our nation's great heritage teaches us these things, that if we take away baking cakes for Sodomites, the next thing that happens in our nation is that they will take away the privilege of Baptists buying or selling anything. And so we give them their freedom so that we can have our freedom. And the Bible shows us that balance, and I've already re- given you the references. 1 Corinthians 10, go to a block party dedicated to Zeus. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm not telling you to come out of the world. You can go ahead and, for, you can go ahead and have company with the sodomites of this world. Does it say that there? Right. It says it in 1 Corinthians 5. They will take away our liberties if we take away serving them. Listen, you know what a wise man would do? A wise man realizing that the sodomites are a growing segment of our population would make the best cake they had ever made. They would put extra icing on it and an extra layer on it for the sodomites so the sodomites would send out an email and go on Facebook and it would go viral that this bake store in Seattle wants to bake cakes for the Sodomites and they would all come there and they could get rich and franchise it and open outlets around the country. And then you could be a Christian bakery that is based on suppositional apologetics from the Bible. That's hard for people to grasp because they make enemies that God hasn't made. Sodomites are God's enemy, but so are adulterers. So are those that don't train their children. Are you going to ask everyone that comes into your bakery, do you baptize by immersion or sprinkling at your church? Do you celebrate Christ's Mass? Are you Roman Catholic? You've got a turban on, and I don't think your hair is wet. I can't bake you a cake. Learn to think. This is part of this, God's revelation to us. You know, some Christians make enemies when they don't need to, and they bring a bad name on Christians. Has there ever been a time in the world when Baptists couldn't buy or sell unless they had the mark of the beast? Only 1,260 years. Do you know how we get to bring that back? By not baking cakes for sodomites. how did I get off on that with Solomon's porch and Jesus walking in the temple? Because we were dealing with national holidays and I wanted to share with you how we make our decisions from the Bible. Verse 24, Then came the Jews round about him in Solomon's porch and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? Can you believe that question? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. They're fussing about the parable here, but he had just told them he was the Christ back in John chapter 9 because there were Pharisees standing around the man born blind. Look at verse 35. John 9, 35, right in front of this event. Are these two are are these two chapters tied closely together? Uh, If they're not tied together by just minutes, they're tied together in the memory of the Jews because of this. Look at verse 21. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Notice what miracle is on the minds of the people standing around Jesus demanding this of him. Now, if they knew about this, they know about what I'm going to show you right now. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast a blind man out of the temple, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Is that plain? Can you get any plainer than that? The one talking to you right now, blind man, that is no longer blind, and the one standing right in front of you, he's the son of God. I believe, and he worshiped him. Now, can you get plainer than that? I don't know how you can get plainer than that. But see, it wouldn't matter anyway. I've already told you that, haven't I? When they begged of him a sign in Matthew chapter 12, he gave them a sign of Jonah. I will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. When he did exactly that, and those soldiers came running into Jerusalem and said, uh, last night was very strange. There was an earthquake and it shook the whole place and some men appeared in glistening white garments, and we became blind and couldn't move. We were just in a trance, and they moved the stone away, and his body is gone, and we saw him, you know, whatever else they saw. It doesn't tell us, but they did that, and the Jews paid them a great sum of money to say that the disciples had come and stolen his body away when he gave them a sign, because it doesn't matter. But this is how people will press a preacher of the gospel. Well, tell us about this. Well, what about that? Well, what about this? Don't you think that a pastor's already gone through your three butts and 1,000 butts that you're not smart enough to even think, think about? Amen. You think Jesus is, I don't like them picking on my Savior this way, and you shouldn't like them picking on your Savior this way. And Jesus doesn't like them picking on his ministers this way, so he told them, don't answer foolish and unlearned questions. Don't strive about words to no profit. Don't do it. Don't rebuke a scorner. Proverbs chapter 9. Don't give that which is holy to dogs. Don't cast your pearls before swine. All these rules, both testaments, teach men how to stay at peace. And if there's people that don't like peace, bye-bye. They can find peace somewhere else. But here the Jews come around Jesus and they're provoking him. And he says in verse 25, I told you and ye believe not. He told them in John 9, 35. Just moments earlier or earlier, and they understood that event. And he had, John the Baptist had told them, he had been declaring it, this is 40 months into his ministry, 38. 38 months in his ministry, it's winter. It's right in front of his crucifixion. He was crucified in March or April, Passover. Three months away from 42 months. Three and a half year ministry. He's declared he was the son of God over and over. John the Baptist declared it, and he had done many works. Jesus answered, I told you, and you believe not. You want me to tell you, I did tell you, but it didn't help. You don't believe me. John the Baptist told you. He doesn't say that here, he said it in John chapter 5. Remember, he said, I'm not bearing witness of myself. I have three witnesses I have John the Baptist, I have my miracles, and I have your scriptures. Search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. In fact, they would have found a dated prophecy that led them right to him. They had better and more accurate historical records then than we have now. Because they were closer to the action, and it was their nation involved in the decree to rebuild the city and temple of Jerusalem. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. He had told them, but they believed not, in verse 25. Then he he appeals to his works. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Throughout this Gospel of John, he has said, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Remember that? John chapter 5. My Father and I are working together. Everything I do, my Father told me to do. So these works that I do in my Father's name, I keep referring to my Father, then I perform a miracle that none of you can perform, and then I perform another miracle that none of you can perform, then ten, then a hundred, then a thousand, that none of you can perform, and I do it in my Father's name. Isn't that enough witness that I am the Son of God? Right. And then we get verse 26. But ye believe not, though I tell you, and you don't believe, though I show you my miracles, and you don't believe, Though John the Baptist declared it of me, and you don't believe, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep as I said unto you. He had said in verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. He had just told them, my sheep know me, I know my sheep, but ye are not of my sheep, and that is why you don't believe. The Arminians teach... But ye are not of my sheep, because ye believe not, as I said unto you in John 3.16. Are you with me? Look at the verse. But ye are not of my sheep, because ye believe not, as I said unto you in John 3.16. Arminians have taught us in our lives that to be a sheep of Jesus, all you had to do was invite Jesus into your heart to become a sheep. Jesus said... You don't believe on me because you're not of my sheep. You have to be a sheep in order to believe on Jesus Christ. And then he explains what it is to be a sheep of Jesus Christ. It is to be one of his elect because verse 29 says, My father which gave them me. Verse 28, I give unto them eternal life. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We have the relationship of shepherd and sheep that I described to you in the parable of the first five verses of this chapter. But you believe not. You don't know me. I don't know you. We don't have any connection because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Oh, I love that. That is powerful preaching. Right in their faces. There is nothing there for them to become sheep. God makes sheep and God makes goats goats never become sheep and sheep never become goats God makes the difference and God will put the sheep on his right hand Matthew 25 31 and 32 and he'll put the goats on his left hand and the sheep believe and the goats won't and they're pressing him tell us plainly we want to know we want to know we want to settle our controversy I did tell you and you didn't believe And why don't you look at my works? They prove that I'm the son of God. But in spite of my works, and this is not said here, but in spite of John the Baptist, in spite of what I've said, in spite of your dated and timed prophecies, in spite of everything, but ye believe not, and I love that inspired disjunctive, it defines what makes the difference among men when it comes to the worship of our God and his son Jesus Christ and a love of the Bible. God makes the difference but ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. It is not, you are not my sheep because you don't believe. You don't believe because you're not of my sheep. I was 19 years old. I was reading the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, the sovereignty of God, God's will, man's will, and free will the death of death, and the death of Christ. And one of those writers opened up John 10, 26 to me, down in my basement hideaway, foolish son, given some books to read by a closet Calvinist. Motorcycle Johnny came running up the stairs and into his father's office, Dad, Dad! Look at John 10, 26. We've taught that you have to believe in order to become one of Jesus' sheep. But Jesus said, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. You have to be a sheep in order to believe. Amen. We've had it backwards, Dad. But God be thanked. Yes. Amen. Don't think I was trying to thank you baby sprinkling heretics from the past like John Owen and Jonathan Edwards though I appreciate God using them and Balaam appreciated God using an ass I, but God be thanked yes. but God be thanked 19, now 41 some math like that, 41 years ago but ye believe not it doesn't matter if I tell you you don't believe it doesn't matter the works that I do in my father's name they bear witness of me but ye believe not Because you're not of my sheep, as I said unto you. And the best, closest example of him saying it to them, that they weren't of his sheep, is verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine and you guys don't know me and you wanna fight about me and you wanna push me and provoke me to tell you plainly, but I have told you in 935 and I've shown you by my works, but ye but, but ye believe not, the reason you won't believe, can't believe is because you're not of my sheep as I have already said to you. My sheep and I have a relationship that is tight and close, I know them, they know me, they know my voice, they follow me, I open, I take them out, I find them pasture, they go in, they go out. And I come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And all you false shepherds that are thieves, robbers, and hirelings, you don't know anything, you don't know the shepherd, and you don't know or care about your sheep. There's an entirely different relationship going on here, and you're not part of it because you're not of my sheep. And there the Lord Jesus Christ sets that straight. And we'll come back and we'll look at verse 26 a whole lot better. I hope that you can look at verse 26 and understand that it has the five points of Calvinism in it in the following three verses or four. Verse four would be verse 30 which is the personal identity of the nature and purpose and plan and redemptive efforts of the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verses 26 through 29 you have total depravity but ye believe not. You have unconditional election because the Father gave them to Christ in verse 20. 9. You have limited atonement because Jesus only gives the sheep eternal life in verse 28. You have irresistible grace because my sheep hear my voice and that is conversion and you have final preservation. No man can pluck them out of my hand. No man can pluck them out of my father's hand. All five points of doctrine right here in four verses powerfully presented right to the faces of reprobates. No offer to them. If you'll just do this, then you can become a sheep. You can lose those goat horns and become a sheep. Nothing like that. Thank you, Heavenly Father. If it weren't for the grace of God, we'd be trotting around like goats out there following the the prince and the God of this world and the children of wrath and the children of disobedience as eagerly as anyone if it weren't for the grace of God. We started with these four words, and let's end with them. But God be thanked. But God be thanked.